You can find me online at TurnerESQ on Twitter. I write for SoccerESQ.com, and I'm a contributor with The Athletic and Sounder at Heart. On this week's episode, it's all things Chicago Fire, talking with Nicole Hack, Section 8 Chair for the Supporters Group for the Chicago Fire, and Guillermo Rivera, who writes for The Fire on The Athletic. We get into a great conversation talking some historical issues involving the fire, their move from Soldier Field to Bridgeview, talk about their impending move back to Soldier Field, as well as some on-field issues involving the team. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now, I've got a couple of great guests uh, from out in Chicago talking about all things fire. i got Guillermo Rivera of The Athletic and Nicole Hack, who is the chair of Section 8. Good evening, uh, lady and gentlemen, and I just want to give you both a chance to just introduce introduce yourselves real quick. Uh, Nicole, uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is Nicole, and I've been a fire supporter um, since 2004, and most recently um, this year I became the chair of Section 8 Chicago. I'm uh, Guillermo Rivera. I cover the uh, fire for the Athletic Chicago. And uh, at Chicago now at Fire Confidential, I've been covering the fire for uh, 10 years. Awesome. Yeah, so I wanted to get both of you on to just chat about the fire generally and the news that they will be returning to their previous home, their ancestral home at uh, Soldier Field, starting, it looks like, next year. And before we talk about that new news... I wanted to chat a little bit about the history of, you know, the fire and their uh, time previously at Soldier Field. Uh, and, Guillermo, what can you, you know, tell those of us who may not have been following the fire way back when uh, about, uh, you know, kind of their introduction to the league and uh, their initial stay at Soldier Field? That actually segues kind of uh, well to when you came in to the fire in around 2004. So uh, what about you? What what was your experience coming in um, at a time where they had a ton of success but weren't necessarily capturing the Chicago market? I don't know that at that point that I was really thinking about what <laughs> what they were capturing, right? If, yeah. If they were, um, what our audience 
games they were targeting. I was going to games with my family. I would sit one half with my family and stand one half with the supporters. And at that time, it was just, um, I was in my early 20s. It was really exciting and fun and energetic. And the people in the community made me feel welcome and like a part of the club. And I think that is largely in part two to Peter Wilt and his attitude towards supporters and the culture at the time. Um, so, yeah, that was my earlier experience, at least in, like, the 2004 and 2005 before we moved to Brickfield. Yeah, and actually, Peter, we, I didn't, we didn't mention this when we were talking uh, before we started, but Peter Wilt was pretty instrumental um, in the development, early development of the fire. And, Nicole, you talked a little bit about, you know, your experience with him. What do you re- remember about uh, Peter specifically, if anything? I just remember everybody, I mean, and it's still the same way, everybody, Peter's everybody's friend. And he makes you feel special and he makes you feel important and he makes you feel like you're a part of something bigger bigger than just yourself and I think that's important in growing that supporter of fan base he makes us he makes it inclusive and he was pretty instrumental in the uh, in the negotiations in Bridgeview is that is that right uh, from what I recall uh, he had a, a big hand in developing that project yeah I mean he was a general manager at the time and that for all intents and purposes with a case of uh, Bridgeview coming up with a Deal they couldn't refuse because they didn't really have a deal anywhere else. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, and they're not going to be now. They're not going to be uh, bending over backwards and build a soccer stadium in Chicago. You know, obviously, the, the market has changed now. They're a little bit uh, MLS is in better standing. Uh, you know, there's uh, a World Cup coming up in the United States. Uh, maybe that helps sway some of the uh, decision making politically uh, in terms of you know building excitement and giving people. <laughs> A reason to spend money on, on, on building a soccer stadium, but uh, you know back then the city wanted to hit, wanted no part of building a soccer stadium. Richview came in and said, "Hey, we'll build no soccer stadium. You're not going to pay anything. We'll flip the bill. Just come on over." Uh, at that point, no one's complaining. Uh, the league was insistent on, "Hey, we we are gearing our teams towards soccer specific stadiums." Um, and to, you know, a market like Chicago. You would think needed to have a soccer-specific stadium. They they found Ridgeview as a willing taker, and here we go. Yeah, I always found it a little bit interesting. Sorry, chiming in here um, because I heard rumors that Daly didn't want the stadium, but Daly wanted the Olympics. Um, so I always thought it was interesting that um, a, another additional stadium wasn't built within like city limits. But that's all I know about that. Uh, what do, what do you remember about uh, Soldier Field? Uh, since we're going to be coming back there uh, uh, shortly, what do you remember about uh, Soldier Field itself in those in those early days? It was, I mean, Soldier Field in the early days. Uh, I, I think Nicole kind of alluded to the sort of community and the atmosphere that was being built early on, and that's really helped establish the franchise or the, the club um, into. Maybe I don't want to call it this, but I don't know if any other word. It's sort of a niche um, following in the Chicago market among sports fans. Uh, I think uh, Peter Wilson, like Nicole said, Peter Wilson's ability to uh, reach out to the fans and make them feel like they were part of a, a club and uh, get them involved in almost constant contact in, uh, with the activity of the club really helped sort of build that community. Uh, up to the point where they felt, hey, well, now we're moving into a park. Let's take that and move it down here. In, in theory, it works. All right, they thought it would work. But, uh, and well, I'm sure we'll get into it, there were different mitigating factors as to why um, Toyota Park ended up as sort of a uh, white elephant and, and they ended up moving out. The early days in Soldier Field, and I think we're more about community, we're more about uh, sort of building something or the feeling of building something uh, from the ground up that was uh, hopefully going to be successful. And the, the, the soccer in the, in the city, professional soccer at least, uh, had been missing for over a decade after the NASL uh, went away and Chicago State went away. So uh, there was a cross-section of fans that missed professional soccer at the top-flight level of America. 
interesting fans that came across. There were younger fans um, who started to uh, sort of build a fan sh- a fandom uh, because their parents were coming over. So it's so the early days sort of feel were uh, like the early days of anything. It's a Yeah, and Chicago obviously was part of the early part of MLS where they were dealing with uh, fan interest, uh, trying to fill those big cavernous stadiums, and then uh, a contraction comes in the early part of the 2000s, and they nearly you know go out of business as an entity and come out of that. And I think at that point is when they decided that they needed to be in soccer specific stadiums mostly. And, uh, as you talked about, Soldier Field wasn't going to be viable, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which I think was, it was being remodeled, correct? Yeah, it was being remodeled. Uh, they ended up playing in Naperville for a little over a season. Um, so, but they, they ended up back in Soldier Field. And I think, uh, <clears throat> the reasons for Soldier Field not being viable are going to be the same reasons that they need to build a soccer specific stadium <laughs> here in the next season. So, uh, they're going to be back in the, the city proper, and they're going to have a little bit of attention, a little bit of buzz that way. Um, but again, it's going to be a short-term bump that um, doesn't solve all of their issues. Yeah. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about Bridgeview, because obviously we're right around 2004, 2005. Um, and then, uh, you know, Soldier Field is not something where the, uh, not where the FAR can stay, and they're playing in Naperville. And then Bridgeview gets be- built, and uh, behind the scenes, obviously, uh, this the the deal they signed with Bridgeview is probably one of the most notorious sports lease deals in the United States. Uh, you know, in the context of municipalities wanting to protect themselves from teams building, uh, you know, building stadiums or having stadiums built for them more more accurately, and then leaving. Um, but uh, Nicole, what what was your what was kind of the fan base reaction, and what did what did they think about Bridgeview when the place was first built? Because it's a nice facility. I don't remember like the initial reaction. I think we were all pretty excited about um, having our own soccer specific stadium. Uh, I recall there being mixed feelings. Right, I mean, no nowhere in the Chicagoland area is going to be ideal for everyone. Yeah. So if we lived on the north side of the city, they might not have been happy. But general consensus, I think, was that there was an excitement behind something soccer-specific only. And I even recently was talking with former chairman Joel Pictel, and he said that he used to go down to Bridgeview and, like, check on, like, the groundwork of a stadium being built. And that's something special and really cool to be a part of. So, overall, I think there was a general excitement for this stadium. Yeah, I think there was excitement um, from the fan base. But I think in, in the first year of Toyota Park, they sort of missed, and uh, some of this went into, uh, goes back to uh, the dismissal of Peter Wilton in an opportune time. They sort of missed the opportunity to really um, excite the masses about a new stadium. And uh, I think that first year at Toyota Park was a little bit overwhelming, uh, underwhelming, I should say. And they still won a... Uh, a a U.S. Open Cup there, I believe, or a U.S. Open Cup in that era, and they were in the playoffs pretty much every year. So they were pretty successful on the field, uh, even if they didn't win an MLS Cup during that time. Uh, and so what was the, you know, as they were moving in and, and getting settled in, uh, Nicole, what was, uh, how, how did those next few years go from your perspective, um, especially going there, going there with your family, um, you know, week in and week out? Of how we got to this point, and uh, 
this point. Uh, so it's there. There's no one single thing that you can point at as, uh, as identifying Toyota Park as a as a as, as a failure. And I think you pointed to, uh, you mentioned the uh, sort of restricted restrictive lease agreement, but uh, but again, in, in 2004, 2005, when they decided uh, on the on the Bridgeview deal. They moved into the state and didn't have to pay for it, so it was pretty good for them on the front end. Yeah, I think you know, going back to that, you know, I think at that point MLS was in kind of a beggars can't be choosers kind of kind of mode. Uh, there were, you know, again they were coming out of contraction. Uh, you know, they were able to get a couple of uh, soccer specific stadiums built, but they needed, I think they needed what they they took what they can get, and as a result, they you know signed a lease that. As it turns out, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a, a little bit later, ended up not working for anybody, um, which is part of the reason why they've uh, decided to to move. So, uh, going to you know, around 2007, then Andrew Hopman comes into the picture, taking over uh, the fire from AEG, and what uh, Nicole, uh, you know, as far as the the fans were concerned. Did you guys know anything about Hauptman at that point, uh, or was it just kind of like, "All right, we've got some independent ownership. Great, let's let's get moving and uh, start continue or continue building the uh, the team." We're going back uh, a little bit further than my memory allows. Probably previous to when I was became like more deeply um, involved in the, the supporters' culture, but um, I don't remember specifically knowing too much about Andrew other than maybe what we're like searching online. Uh, I do remember him being around more in the earlier days and from what I recall having um, the, the board having a halfway decent relationship with him. Yeah, he was, he was definitely more active in communication with the, with the fan base in the early going. Uh, but I think the general uh, sentiment among the fan base at that point was that uh, they were happy to get out from under the AEG umbrella because they were one of several teams that they were operating, and they were looking for an independent owner that, uh, uh, that at least held some responsibility on that corporate side. I, I think uh, uh, they were unhappy with the uh, fan base, with any with the, uh, the handling of Wolf's dismissal. Uh, they sort of saw that as a, you know, a corporate decision, and they were, I think, they were happy at that point to see AEG go and uh, have the fire end up in the hands of an individual owner who, at least uh, uh, at, at that point, would. Uh, Theoretically, be held responsible for um, you know for, for the franchise or at least one franchise. Yeah. So, uh, and then we're we're kind of moving into the uh, the turn of the decade, and the fire at that point, or yeah, going from there, uh, are moving on from uh, guys like McBride and, and Blanco. And what what can you say about the, about that time period? Say from 2010 to 2015. Uh, not much success, and what can you say about the on-field product and, and also the front office relationship uh, with the fans at that point? Yeah, I think when, I mean, when Blanco and McBride were around, you know, we're rewinding back a little bit. Oh, yeah, um, go, go for it. They, things were fun and great, and I think that was probably some of my best, best memories as a fire supporter. Um, the stadium was full always. The atmosphere was great. That, that's that's what I remember, and that's what it could be like again, and should be like again. It should have never declined to the point that it's declined to now. So, getting to like 2010 to 2015, um, I mean 2015 and 2016, Clay took last place two years in a row. So, um, I know that's not supporter related, but it starts turning into a supporter issue. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah, well, to me, in this era, we're talking about what I see as the turning point or the downturn uh, of the fire. I think one key season, uh, or uh, how they approached the following season uh, after the 2009 playoffs, really played a part into what happened now and why, in their minds, Toyota Park didn't work. Uh, 2009 season, uh, they uh, packed two playoff games at Toyota Park. They lost in a penalty kicks to Real Salt Lake. Uh, Blanco was uh, uh, Blanco was uh, a huge presence in the team and actually brought some uh, visibility 
and the marketability to the Chicago market, and a lot of that was the Hispanic uh, market, but at least uh, they had a name that was uh, uh, a draw. Um, following the 2009 season, Blanco left, and there really was very, and, and, and Nicole referenced uh, the 1,000 uh, season ticket holders in, in the Harlem end. Um, the Harlem end going in 2010 was poised to expand uh, based on the 2009 success and 2008 success, they did absolutely nothing to replace Blanco and the uh, uh, excitement that he brought to that team. They um, uh, hired Carlos Calascobo, Nestor, and that led to uh, just one mistake after the other on and off the field. I think uh, the 2009 season going into 2010, there was a turning point for when things went bad with the fire. That's it. Does it match up, Nicole, with uh, kind of your recollection of that time period as well? Just kind of, it, you know, once Blanco left, that was kind of the, uh, the the change in the philosophy of the team as far as bringing in big players. Uh, and you know, what do you recall about uh, about that time period? I don't remember it being, you know, necessarily like an immediate, like, scare to all of us, right? We, we noticed those things and we noticed... Uh, that things might be changing, but it wasn't like this immediate like concern that things were going to be as drastic as they have been. But when we do talk about the like decline of like supporters culture or how things have evolved to where they're at now, I think we kind of reference like a ten year period, which would make sense going back to around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Yeah, and there were some efforts um, to sort of try to replace um, the sort of cachet that Blanco blocked the team by bringing in uh, guys like Freddie Humberg, um, Alfred Fernandez, Neri <laughs> Castillo. But, uh, <laughs> Who we, we are very familiar with out here on the uh, in the Seattle area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, those were sort of... Uh, Blanco was an A player. They, they brought in C, C players and D players to try to replace them, and that obviously didn't work. Yeah, and so, and then things got to take, uh, you know, a turn in around 2014 and 2015. And that's when Nelson Rodriguez is appointed. And, uh, and maybe you can clarify, uh, you know, I, my understanding and re- recollection is that this is essentially an MLS decision to have Rodriguez come in initially. And what I remember about that time period is, uh, Taylor Twelman on an MLS broadcast basically saying, uh, Rodriguez is brought in because, uh, Chicago of uh, the fire is MLS's number one priority slash concern. I think just from a mark, you know, a market perspective. Now that's more, that's more businessy and corporate than probably most of us care about. But, you know, at least from MLS's point of view, they decided, you know, things were at such a point in Chicago that they just couldn't leave things as they were at that point, especially coming off of the fact that they had just shuttered Chivas USA, even though they were bringing in LAFC later on. But so they kind of had these two, these two issues going on, um, mainly one with the fire and then just generally with some big market issues that they were dealing with. Yeah. Well, uh, you missed the Frank Yalabera. Ah, yes. <laughs> Rodriguez uh, replaced the Yalabera. Kind of get back to uh, Rodriguez being an MLS appointment. Um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily true in the way that uh, some people think it was. I don't think there's any. I don't. I don't think there was an intent to have Rodriguez to come in and clean this mess up. I mean, we actually asked him about this uh, when he was first hired and whether or not uh, he was playing the part of uh, MLS's Winston Wolf. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, I think he might have been a, a reference or uh, someone that uh, MLS went uh, back to Andrew Huffman and said, uh, hey, we've got uh, Nelson Rodriguez working for us. Uh, if you're looking for a different direction, maybe talk to him, give him a, 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 a chance to uh, turn your franchise around. But I, I don't think he was, or at least I haven't found any uh, evidence in the, uh, to indicate that he was uh, MLS's cleanup man that they appointed to Chicago in order to clean up uh, a perceived mess. And uh, yes, the Chicago market absolutely had to be revitalized and cleaned up, and it still does. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at that point, they knew it was failing. They knew something had to be done. Toyota Park 
uh, had become an issue because people were making uh, uh, aware of the, uh, the lease agreement at that point. Yes. Uh, and uh, how restrictive it was for them. They were having issues with uh, the village of Bridgeview and maintenance of the field at that point. Uh, the relationship between the fire and Bridgeview at that point wasn't, the, it wasn't in the best of terms. There were a whole lot of things going on in, 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 the, in, that, in that sort of time frame um, that started to uh, sort of exacerbate the situation and push it to where um, they, uh, to the point where it is now where they almost have to get out of the Toyota Park or Seeking Stadium, and that's what they're doing. Uh, and uh, Nicole, from from the supporters' uh, perspective, uh, first of all, where were you uh, at, kind of in your uh, leadership role with Section Eight, if if anywhere? Um, and what do you remember about the appointment of uh, Nelson Rodriguez? And you know, from the fans' perspective, what what did you think of that appointment? I think you said it earlier, and that is that we looked at it as he was around when with Chivas USA, when Chivas USA went. Went under uh, and COVID, um, so that was like our initial concern. Um, and as far as my leadership at the time in 2015 and 2016, I was a director of communication for Section Eight. And so uh, Nelson comes in and starts to you know make make some changes. Uh, and just generally, what what were your thoughts about uh, his 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 role at that point and the job he did at least initially? Because I know we're going to talk in a moment about kind of you know where we got to in 2018, but just generally speaking, uh, what uh, what did you think about his initial uh, you know impact on the team? Uh, well, when he came in, the, the club uh, itself was in a very bad situation in terms of the cap and the way it was managed and the contracts that they were tied to in that first year. And the first year was, uh, I think, the worst year in the, in the history of the fire. He cleaned house, and it took him a year to sort of um, get out from under some of those contracts. Sean Maloney was there. Uh, Kennedy Iguodanike was one of the players. Um, David Akam was one of the DPs, and he ended up having a good year in 2017. But uh, his initial um, problem was trying to dig out from under the mess that uh, Yallop had left him because they were uh, they really couldn't do anything with that 2016 season because uh, they just didn't have, any, didn't have any room. They were burdened with some contracts. They just had to move and had to wait to move. Yeah, and so 2017 comes around, and, and there's just a massive change. Uh, Bastion Schweinsteiger is bought, brought in. Uh, they uh, get a couple of other uh, some solid, solid players. And I, I just remember watching, um, you know, Schweinsteiger come in initially and thinking, well, okay, he's, he's getting up there a little bit in age. But he was a he was a rele, uh, revelation at that point, as were the fire for the majority of the season. Uh, so I'll just uh, kind of leave it to both of you. Uh, the 2017 season uh, didn't end, you know, ended unfortunately in a in a bad way. But you know, the season itself had to be quite a ride. Yeah, I mean, after 2015 and 16, finishing last place in the league, and then signing Schweinsteiger, that was really exciting. And it did, numbers went up, and I think we had hope, again, that, that things were turning around. Yeah, I think bringing Schweinsteiger, um, is the, he was the type of player that fans had been uh, sort of barking for for the better part of the last seven, eight years. Um, they, they had been looking for a marquee player. They uh, Andrew Hoffman has spent some money on, on salaries. Um, the Yellow era, um, they spent a little bit of money, but it was money badly spent. Um, uh, they went out and got Mesh and Schweinsteiger, spent a lot of money, and gave them a, a, a temporary bump in terms of attention, in terms of uh, attendance, in terms of uh, visibility in Chicago, um, visibility internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mesh and Schweinsteiger um, got hurt toward the end of that 2017 season, which really hurt them going into the playoffs. Uh, I think um, teams sort of figured them out. Uh, after that very successful first half of the season, uh, when Schweinsteiger got back, he wasn't completely fit. Uh, the team wasn't playing well, and they were uh, unceremoniously booted out of the playoffs in the first half. So uh, they had uh, about three quarters of a year of uh, really successful play on the field and uh, a lot of good attention 
brought to them courtesy of uh, Sam Schweinsteiger. Yeah, and so and you know that leads us into in the twenty eighteen. Uh, the I, you know, I think it's it's fair to argue at least off the field that this may have been the nadir of 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 the franchise because uh, you know obviously I've covered a bit about the fire from the lease and then from the legal side and then we had an incident in May I believe it was if I'm recalling correctly after the Houston Dynamo game where there is some afters the game. And it led ultimately to a group of fans being, uh, you know, essentially banned from fire, attending fire games. Uh, one fan in particular filed a lawsuit, which is still ongoing. And it just led to a mess, which I'm not sure I could describe accurately, even knowing, uh, a number of the facts, um, and circumstances that, you know, led up to it. Uh, Nicole, from your perspective, obviously you're, you're the chair of section eight, uh, and just, I'm gonna let you have the floor on this on this one. What 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 do you recall, and you know, just kind of where 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 are things now? And uh, you know, yeah, just go. Sure. Uh, just to rewind a little bit back from uh, the Houston game, we had our first road trip that season in Minnesota, and we traveled with around 200 250 supporters, um, and that's kind of where things went wrong, I guess you could say. Um, there, there was just some issues that happened at that game, and um, we we thought we would be supported by the FO, and I think they believed they were supporting us, um, but it, we just weren't, you know, supported like how we should have been in regards to self-policing and things like that. Um, so then, uh, a couple months later, there was an alleged fight in front of the stadium, um, with fire and Houston supporters and and um, as far as we know in our concern uh, there were Monterey security was there police were there front office staff was there and nothing was done um, in terms of the fight in regards to the fight um, nobody was reprimanded or those people specifically that are were in view or caught on video or photos were not personally, um, their tickets weren't canceled, but all, I don't know the total number, 100 to 200 people um, in Section 101, mostly sector Latino, um, all of their tickets ended up being canceled, and I don't remember when we were notified of that um, last year, probably, you know, within the next day or a day or two of the game. Yeah, I wrote about this last year at the time. I don't think it was handled particularly well by um, the fire, and I don't think it was particularly handled particularly well by some of the fans who um, participated in the, a couple of the incidents that, that Nicole referenced. Uh, you know, I, I think some of that goes back to the erosion and the uh, sort of mistrust between uh, the fan base and the front office, and that kind of it goes back to the infamous editorial in 2013 and uh, some of the. Uh, well, it's, uh, disrespect shown to the fan base, or at least the uh, the perception of disrespect through um, just different things that have been said and done leading up to that point. Um, and obviously, that was a sort of a boiling point. But again, I don't think that um, that's a reason why the fire has failed up to this point. It's kind of uh, just one of these sort of uh, ancillary stories that. Uh, drew a lot of attention last year, but uh, yep. they had they had to do something rectified. And apparently, it has been, or at least uh, uh, a truce has been called. But it's sort of a, uh, a standalone story that uh, is part of a small part of the bigger picture of uh, the dissatisfaction between uh, the fans and uh, and the club. That's kind of led up to uh, this sort of apathy uh, about the club on the field and off. Yeah, and Nicole, uh, obviously you were uh, involved in in some of those talks. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to ask you necessarily to talk about those internal uh, discussions, but uh, just generally speaking, it seemed to me that uh, Rodriguez and the Fire took a pretty hard line initially with the ban, and then their responses uh, afterwards. Uh, were you were you, did you were you ultimately satisfied with where you ended up? 
uh, even if you didn't necessarily get everything that you were hoping for out of it? So, yeah, just to remind, we we always express that we didn't condone fighting to, sure. to Nelson and the rest of the FO um, over, you know, the span of more than half of last season or at least half of last season. Um, I think we reached a mutual agreement. Our biggest um, efforts were to get Sector Latino, the 101 supporters, back into the stadium. They are back in the stadium. They're now in Section 137. So that was, that was our main goal. Uh, and do you think it's 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 like a, a, a huge fight, or you 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 know, kind of a deal breaker situation? You try to go back and repair it. Do you think you're in the same place you were before? Worse, better? So, in terms of the Harlemen, um, and so which is generally what people refer to as Section Eight, um, I think that uh, because of everything that's happened just over the years, the lack of quality on the field, and then leading into these issues with supporters last year, I think the Harlemen is hurting more than the Sector Latino or 137 section. Um, a lot of people started not going to games over the years, and this was just not last year, but then last year when there was a boycott, a lot of people didn't renew their tickets, and they're still not back because a lot of them won't, won't come back until Nelson and Andrew are gone at this point. So numbers are really slim, and it's really... Uh, we're, we're just holding on and trying to maintain culture, I feel like, at this point. Well, yeah, that's obviously very, you know, it's sad to hear. I don't, I don't know any other way to put it, really. Um, but, and I guess I suppose that does lead into where we are, where at now, which is uh, the fire now looking to leave Bridgeview, or you know, uh, you, know, you basically reported that that is that is a, essentially a done deal. They have not completed a contract which amends the lease, which is obviously very important. Uh, and, you know, the details of that, you know, they've got the fire going to be paying a significant amount of money, though not as not what is owed on the stadium, which is a, a different discussion, which I'm not going to get into at this point. Uh, but the bottom line is Bridgeview is getting a significant sum of money um, and the fire are going to have some flexibility to leave to leave Bridgeview. Yeah, I, I, like you said, they'll have the flexibility to leave Bridgeview. Uh, I think they've lost the um, door open to playing in Bridgeview at some point next year as well. Um, if uh, for some reason games at Soldier Field are, you know, booked uh, against the Bears or, uh, or Lady Gaga concert or something, but uh, I think working around uh, the park district and the different events uh, that uh, and the Bears are number one, obviously. Sure. In terms of their uh, priorities, but I think that uh, at some point is going to be an issue uh, working around the NFL and different park district events uh, and, and sort of playing second or third fiddle uh, again um, and having to possibly jump around uh, maybe a game or two at Bridgeview and maybe uh, people have uh, theorized that they can play at Comiskey Park uh, at some point or uh, guaranteed rate field, I'm sorry, at some point. Um, but they will still train in Bridgeview. Um, their youth academy and um, uh, the, the, uh, all the youth programs will be based out of, out of uh, SeaKeek Stadium. Uh, they're investing $5 million for upgrades to the soccer campus around SeaKeek. Uh, so they'll still have a presence in Bridgeview. Uh, it just won't be as their home anymore. Uh, I, I, that doesn't... I mean, I understand, obviously, why they're why they're getting out of Bridgeview. Uh, you know, again, we've talked a little bit about the lease. I'm not going to go into a dissertation on it, but it, you know, it's, it's obviously one of the most restrictive leases, you know, you know, from the city's point of view, they did a good job drafting it. Um, but, you know, from the fire's point of view, it, it, it's, it was something that was not working. Why, I, I guess I'm, I'm just wondering why they're doing this now if they don't have something more concrete, uh, set with the Soldier Field, and more importantly, a stadium solution down the line. It looks like they're, you know, it seems like they're going to end up with a Yankee Stadium NYCFC situation with a better field. 
Yeah, that, that's a very good question. And um, getting something done within the city of Chicago is not going to be um, easy. It's not something that's going to get done overnight. Uh, the, the Sterling Bay uh, trying to get uh, their Lincoln Yards uh, staying in, uh, fast-tracked, and they own the land, and they weren't able to get it done. Uh, you know, playing in Bridgeview, like you said, uh, moving, the, moving the Soldier Field uh, is something that they just felt they had to do to get more visibility in the city and sort of revitalize the market because they were dying out at, in Bridgeview. Uh, and a lot of that uh, is their own doing. Uh, it's not so much that uh, Bridgeview is inaccessible and because, I mean, there are it is to, to a point because there isn't enough or there isn't any real public trans, uh, transit to and from the stadium. It's difficult to get to from the downtown area, difficult to get to from Chicago proper. But if you're coming from the west suburbs, if you're coming from uh, the south side, you can get to to, uh, to SeatGeek Stadium pretty easily um, and pretty quickly. Yeah, and uh, Nicole, so... And so, Nicole, obviously, the, this has a major impact on the supporters. Uh, you know, again, my my concern is this kind of nomadic existence, even if it is within the greater Chicago area, playing at two or three different places potentially. Uh, I what 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 is your what are the is the sense you're getting from the supporters and, and you you personally? I think that there's a lot of mixed feelings, right? We're really excited to be back in the city. Um, but then there is, you know, tailgating. That, that's a big part of our culture, right, in our community. Is there going to be a designated space for that? Um, and I think transportation is still an issue. The closest CTA stop or public transit is a pretty lengthy walk to the stadium, which is really cool when we have, like, nice summer days. But what happens with the the more casual supporters or fans uh, on these cold March games. Are they are they going to be going to games? So um, we've also heard rumors that there won't be two supporters um, sections, which is what we have now. So there's just a lot that's going to need to be discussed and figured out, uh, I guess, from now until then. But it, it would be most ideal for there to be a soccer-specific stadium with training facilities and everything like that, at least in the works, um, in my opinion, if this move is going to happen. Yeah. And they've also looked at different parcels uh, in terms of building a training facility within city limits. Um, and it's something they've been looking at for years now. I know people have mentioned the Michael Reese Hospital site on the south side as potential uh, landing spot for a new stadium, but they're not going to be the only suitor for that site. Um, and even if even if they do get it done, uh, infrastructure still needs to be developed to get uh, public transit to that site. It's, it's you're not getting off of the CT or getting off of uh, getting off of the L and landing uh, right right at the doorstep of Mike Reese Hospital site, just like you're not getting off the, the L to land at uh, Soldier Field. Uh, so it's not a ready-made site or a stadium either, even if um, they manage to land that spot. And I'm not convinced that uh, that's a uh, something that's going to happen here either. And I think uh, they've got a lot of work to do before they find uh, a viable construction site within the city. Yeah, and, and the other thing is obviously looking on the field, uh, you know, you're going to be in a better situation at Soldier Field, you think, uh, you know, it sounds like the supporters are, are excited, but to get the casual fans, as Nicole mentioned, you know, going on those cold March days, uh, the on-field product is going to need some investment. And how confident are you guys that, uh, Hauptman will be investing in that? He's done that with Schweinsteiger to some degree, but he's likely to be gone next year. And so, you know, it seems to me there's likely going to need to be some type of high-profile replacement coming in. And and what's the feeling that about Hauptman being able to do that, assuming he's still the majority owner? I, I assume he will be, but uh, there's there's other issues there as well. Yeah, I think uh, the influx of um, capital from uh, Joe Mansueto has allowed them to, one, get this deal done, and, and two, look to the future in terms of adding more big names. Big, uh, big cost players that 
may replace guys like Schweinsteiger and, and serve as a draw uh, at Soldier Field. They're, they're, they're going to have to do something significant to generate interest at Soldier Field other than just saying, hey, we're back at Soldier Field, come down and see us. They're going to have to have uh, a sustained plan, uh, not just for uh, success in one year, but for success in two, three, four years. And that's something that they haven't done, even in 2017, when you look at Schweinsteiger and McCarty and, and the team that they put together, that team was put together to win now. That team uh, really didn't have uh, a long-term shelf life as you're seeing now. Um, and, and that's playing out in uh, sort of a lack of uh, a long-term uh, plan at this point. I know uh, there were some, you know, Matt Polster ended up leaving and some of the other pieces that uh, just didn't work out, but uh, they are going to have to spend uh, on salaries and high-profile players in order to make uh, Soldier Field attractive, not just to the fan base, but uh, drawing the uh, sort of general crowd and the uh, um, passerbys that are curious about soccer in, in Chicago and soccer in Soldier Field. And Nicole, what? Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I agree with that. We need, we need, uh, we need a big Mexican name. Right, right. <laughs> Is that that's the bottom line? Chicharito's got to come here at some point. Yeah. Or two MLS anyway. And I think to rewind a little bit is that the people that I know that are more casual fans are excited uh, for Soldier Field, but again, how many games will they be going to, and how long again will that last? Um, yeah. So these big names. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even if you okay. saw the big name Mexican player uh, like Blanco was, and, and Blanco was sort of a, uh, and he was a, a whole different situation <laughs> himself. Um, but uh, even if they do go out and sign a big name Mexican player, there has to be uh, a sustained uh, plan for success because that novelty wore off, will wear off. The novelty of going to the, watching a game in Soldier Field will wear off. The novelty of uh, hey stopping by and, and they wanted. Novelty of drawing those new fans in the Soldier Field will wear off. So there's got to be some sort of a, a plan for sustained success, not just that immediate bump for one year. Yeah, and actually, and uh, one last thing I wanted to to ask about, and uh, there's been some uh, mixed reaction. I think it's fair fair to say is regarding the the name change. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know. Marketing and relevance and all those things. Uh, everyone knows that there is a, a television show by the same name uh, that uh, I know MLS. Uh, it sticks in their craw that they, uh, when you do the search for them uh, or search for Chicago Fire, that's the first hit. Um, and so, as a result, there's been some stuff floated about a name change. Uh, have you heard anything additional about this? And obviously, Nicole, I want to hear what the fans have to say about this uh, generally. No, I, the, as far as I've heard, the name change is not off the table. I think they're considering, still considering all options. I, for me, I think uh, the attraction of sports and the attraction of uh, sort of uh, building a tradition is uh, based on exactly that. It's tradition. They've, they've now spent uh, a generation in building up a brand as the Chicago Fire. Uh, sports being sort of a generational uh, business, uh, they've got that group of uh, parents and kids who have spent the last 20 years sort of attaching themselves to the fire and uh, I think changing it at this point does absolutely nothing for them. You're, you're starting off anew at, uh, at, or again at Soldier Field but whether or not uh, they're called the fire or a Chicago FC, it doesn't matter. They're still going to have to uh, put together a team that's built for sustained success that can draw some interest in whether or not uh, the, it's the same name as a, as a TV show. It doesn't matter. A TV show isn't going to be on the air in five years. Uh, so the, the thought of switching or changing the name because the uh, search engine or you Google Chicago Fire and uh, the TV show comes up is sort of... Uh, short-sighted? It's, it's really short-sighted. It's sort of you know, a half-baked argument. Yeah, changing a name is not going to resolve the issues on the field or in management. Everybody knows that. So uh, I think that most people are against the name change. Yeah, it's a, yeah, again, they're not going to be at the fire. TV show is not going to be there for five years. It's not going to be at the top of the search engines forever. Uh, and we presume that the fire will be here much longer than the TV show will. Sure. And, and if I could just add, 
like we're saying. Um, so it just says it's about what the fire means to Chicago. It drew what we see as a story of fortitude and solidarity. Different cultures coming together to rebuild Chicago into the gorgeous city we see today. A city of proud, hardworking folks, and the recovery after the great Chicago fire symbolizes that. And so that was um, a quote that I'm borrowing from Kevin. <laughs> I just think, I think just describes it like well and, and what the name means and the importance of tradition and, and what Chicago stands for as a city. Well, I think that's well said, and I think that's a good place to close up this discussion. Uh, we'll obviously have much more on this down the line when the fire finalized the deal to move to out of Bridgeview to Soldier Field. They're going to have a lot of work uh, ahead of them to, I think, restore uh, the faith of a portion of the fan base and to get more casual viewers and uh, watchers of soccer and those who may have left as a result of what I think it's fair to say has been mismanagement over the last, you know, five to eight years to get them back um, into Soldier Field and then hopefully later into a soccer-specific stadium because, as I think you both uh, have said, it's it's not a uh, – Soldier Field is not a long-term solution uh, to what ails the fire. No, and, and you know, Taylor Twelman has uh, thrown out the names like Robert Lewandowski or Chicharito and I, I don't think they're going to be averse to spending money here, big money, to bring those guys in and uh, sort of uh, make Soldier Field a draw. But again, that's a manner of getting that done. I don't know that uh, any of that stuff is uh, <laughs> is a shoe is a surefire thing to happen. In. Okay, well, I think that's a great place to, to leave this discussion. I want to thank uh, Guillermo and Nicole for joining me. Uh, before I uh, let them go. Uh, Please uh, plug where people can find your work and or Twitter musings. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, you can find me at FireConf on Twitter, um, Chicago Now, uh, for uh, game day coverage, and of course that at the Athletic uh, Chicago for uh, most of my written content. <laughs> uh, you can find me on the call at Nick Hack. It's N-I-K-H-A-K on Twitter and on Instagram. All right. Thanks, guys. I want to thank the, Nicole and Gabriel for uh, joining me on this uh, episode of the Soccer HQ podcast. And I'm sure we will be back in the future to talk a little bit more about uh, where the fire go uh, once they've got some additional uh, news to report on their stadium situation. So, again, thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you.